we start a very special series uh, this week. Um, every single year, and since we've been in existence, which is a really long time, yeah. two years. Uh, so every year, this is annual now, uh, we do something called You Asked For It, where somewhere around Easter time, uh, we send out a, or put out a survey and ask you to vote on the kinds of things that you would like to hear about. And what I love about this series is that, uh, frankly, as a pastor, I'm not guessing at what you're going through <laughs> and what you're struggling with and wondering about. Um, and so this speaks directly to where many of you are today. And uh, as we go through this series, since these are topics that we have questions about and that you find yourself in in life, we actually found some people that we sat down and asked them a few questions about the topic. And so our topic for the first week was the most voted for um, subject on that survey is marriage. All right, so it doesn't matter, by the way, whether you're married or not, want to be one day or don't, a healthy understanding of what marriage is will benefit all of us. And so Jess and I have actually been going through uh, taking a couple through premarital counseling because they're getting married in just a few short weeks. And uh, so we finished that premarital counseling and then we asked them to sit down and ask them some questions about marriage before they get married. So we are going to hear from Dylan and Alicia. I'm Dylan. I'm Alicia. We're getting married on September 21st. It's coming up. <laughs> I did not have a positive example of marriage growing up. My parents split up whenever I was eight, and that was tough for me. My mom remarried, and my dad did not. I had a very positive example of marriage. My parents are still married. They got married when they were around 21, and so is everyone else in my family. We haven't had anyone go through a divorce. I decided to get married because I knew Alicia was who I wanted to spend the rest of my life with. I decided to get married because we've been together for a little over five years, been through a lot together, kind of growing up, getting started in our jobs. Um, we communicate very well and I love him. The biggest unknown to me about marriage is not knowing what's gonna come in the future as far as struggles or family deaths and how we're gonna handle that in the future. Yeah, I agree. I think the unknown is scary because there's things we haven't gone through. We don't know how each other's gonna react to that because our relationship's been pretty normal, I would think. We haven't went through tragedies yet and we know that is inevitable. Um, so I would say, yeah, the unknown is the unknown. Coming from a broken home, my biggest fear is that one day we end up like that and that I have to put you through that and possibly our future children one day and it's just a big fear of mine even though we're both committed to making that not happen. I agree. I think the biggest thing is remembering to date each other. I feel like when you get caught up in a marriage or job, day-to-day -day things, we might lose the focus on each other and it lead us to a spot where we don't want to be around each other as much as we do now while we're in the honeymoon phase. So that's the goal is to not get there. The key to a successful marriage is definitely being honest and communication with each other. I agree and I think having respectful conversations. Um, when you get angry, upset, it's 
The most important thing I think with communication is to maintain the respect. Truthful. On a scale of 1 to 10 for marriage, I feel like I'm about a 7. I agree. I'm about a 7, 8. I'll say 8 to be nice. But I think we feel very positive about it. We have a good outlook. It's just the unknown. I mean, you never know what's going to happen. They are getting married soon, and it was real, it's a real privilege to be able to do premarital counseling uh, with couples like Dylan and Alicia. And uh, it's one of the things that really helps you get started well on uh, your marriage journey, so to speak. And um, so I don't know how many of you um, that are married in the room had to go through premarital counseling before you got married. Um, I did, Jess, Jess and I did, we both did, not just me. Um, but my, my dad did the ceremony for us, and um, it, well, it would be a little weird for him to do the premarital counseling, so some good friends of his did it with us, and it was fantastic. It was very helpful because, um, like they said, before you get into marriage, you kind of know some of the things, but you don't really know until you're actually there and doing it. And so something like that is very helpful for people before they get married. Um, we actually use a program here at Carolina Family Church called Simbus stands for Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts. And it's a really cool program. It actually begins with a survey that you take. Um, it's a survey built by the same people that built the eHarmony.com compatibility survey. You know that? Like, the eHarmony.com guy gets all the credit for it because he came up with the idea. But Drs. Les and Leslie Parrott were actually the ones who built the algorithm. And um, so they're, they're Christian marriage counselors. And they built this system called Simbus. And what it does is it goes through and it identifies, and we take the survey, and it identifies your, your points of agreement and where your possible points of contention may be. It helps you to understand your personalities going in. helps you to understand there's a whole section on baggage, <laughs> what you're carrying into the marriage with you. And that might be preconceptions about marriage or your desire to be married or debts or other relationships, other things that you bring into the marriage. It really is the best thing I've ever seen to help couples get prepared for marriage. And of course, we um, the most important part of that is talking about the spiritual aspect of your connection with one another as a married couple, because that's the most important thing to your marriage. And so it's a fantastic, um, fantastic system. And I just want you to know, we talked uh, a while back about our church's vision to launch what we're calling the Family Center, which will be a place in town where people can come and they can get help for their family-related issues. Coaching, classes, training, counseling, all these kinds of things will be available. And our goal is to uh, provide all of those completely for free to the community. Because we, we genuinely believe that if we can help fix broken families, we can help fix a broken community. That it starts at home. So we're committed to doing that. And we're still in the planning stages of that family center. But Simbus, the premarital counseling, is one of those things that we are going to offer for free for any couple that wants to go through it, whether we're performing the marriage or not. Because we think it's incredibly important for, for couples to have that foundation, that base, before they go in. Alright, so we're still in the process of getting the Family Center up and running. This is one of the kinds of things we're going to be doing. And I just want to thank you for your continued generosity because in being able to make this available for free 
what we're saying to the community, we're going to make this available to you for free. Now that does have to be paid for, and it will be paid for by our church, by your continued generosity. And so we're watching the trends in our offerings to see when we're going to be able to pull the trigger on the building and the staff person to get that off the ground. So I just want to say thank you for it, um, for your continued consistent generosity, because it's going to allow us to get that thing up and moving and helping our community as quickly as possible. Marriage, I think the reason that you asked about this, and, and one, of, one of my tricks every time with this series is figuring out, I know what you asked for because I see the survey, but I got to figure out why you asked it. So why did you ask to hear about marriage? And I think it's because marriage is fantastic and frustrating Maybe at equal levels all at the same time. <laughs> it, is, it is tremendously exciting. It is some of the most fulfilling, it's one of the most fulfilling things you'll ever experience in your life, designed by God, yet it brings also a lot of frustration into our life and a lot of trouble. And I gotta be honest with you, I don't think you would have asked for it if it was all going real well. <laughs> okay? It's not like it's not like everybody's Marriages are cotton candy and rainbows. And then when you see the survey, it's like, oh, I'd love to hear about that. Usually, it's we're struggling, we're stressed out, and I, I want to know what to do. I want to know where to go with this thing or how to think about it. And that's why we asked for it. A marriage, I think, is the extreme example of all relationships, which are both fulfilling and frustrating at the same time. It's the most intense of those relationships. And to me, if I was going to get a visual representation of what marriage is, it would be what we call the antenna galaxies. Are you familiar? Look at that. Aren't they beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? That's, that is the most recent picture of a formation they call the antenna galaxies from the Hubble Space Telescope. It is gorgeous. But do you know what's going on there? It's actually two galaxies that are merging into one which creates this beautiful thing that we get to see from our perspective on Earth with these, this incredible technology that we have. It's gorgeous from the outside. But do you know what's going on inside of those galaxies? Chaos, destruction, collision, lots of opposing forces, stars slamming into each other and forming new stars. And I think in some way, that's a really great picture of what marriage is. You take these two individuals that love each other and want to partner with each other, want to join with each other for the rest of their life, and you slam their lives together, and the Bible says that the two become one flesh. And I'm telling you, that won't happen without pain. Okay? And it's not going to be all rainbows and giggles, as exciting as it is, and listen, as worth it as it is, it's not always going to be easy. Marriage is probably, I think it is the deepest relationship that you will ever experience in life. It's, in life, it's not just a social union, and it's certainly not just a civil union. It is a spiritual union of two people. And when you take two people, as alike as two people could possibly be, and merge them like that at the spiritual level, it's still going to be difficult. There is nobody who has ever had it easy all the way through their marriage. Not in the history of the world. Actually, it's kind of funny. Um, when Jess and I got married, I did something romantic. If you remember. It would have been the last time. So, I did something romantic, and I wrote her a song. 
Yeah, remember that? You did. I'm glad you did. I wrote her a song. Actually, I still remember it. I wrote her a song, and, uh, and I played it at the wedding. And the chorus was, nobody ever told me, or no one ever told me, it would be this easy. Today begins forever. Tomorrow starts today. And uh, at the time, it was like, it really did feel like we were so young that our love was really easy. You know? You get stars in your eyes, and, and you love everything about the other person. But then over time, you still. You, I know you're doing it. I gotta be honest, right? That's that's the rule. And so, uh, so over time, you realize it's not as easy as you thought it was gonna be when you started. You realize all of a sudden that love doesn't just happen. You gotta work at it. You gotta work at it, and you have to be intentional. And so, it's very important because there is a merging of two souls. Jesus. Uh, it is very clear to us, he quoted the Old Testament, Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 6. Pharisees came, also came to him, testing him and saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? They're trying to trap Jesus. They do it all the time. It never actually worked. And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's quoting now in, in his words. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And I know when we first get married, the thought is, all right, we're getting married, now we begin our happily ever after. But we realize it takes more work than that. Nobody ever told you there would probably be more worse than better. Or that there would be more poorer than richer. Or that there would be more sickness than health. And love that starts off with romance, like Romeo and Juliet, morphs into reality. And the dog that's been chasing the car for so many years finally catches it and runs into it. <laughs> Think about that. Dog chasing the car, one time hits up with the car, stops, and the dog gets a baseball pump. That's what happens. Eventually, reality sets in, and that might be finances, might be something with finances, it might be something with priorities, it might be something with work and scheduling, it might be something with children and how you're going to raise them and discipline them, or whether you're going to get them vaccinated or not, or which kind of school they're going to go to. All of a sudden, reality hits, and frankly, the things that you loved about them to begin with start to irritate you. Because when you were dating or when you were engaged, she was she was organized and you loved that about her. But now she's compulsive. <laughs> that was mental illness as far as you're concerned. When it first started, you loved the fact that he was so spontaneous. It's a lot of fun. But now you're married. And he's irrational. He's childish. He's you know, all those things that we loved about them when it first started begin to irritate us. Those very same things. And at some point, so romance turns into reality, and at some point, it happens for everybody on some level, one level or another, on one thing or another, to one extreme or another, reality turns into resentment. Reality turns into resentment. And that is when the pressure is on in a marriage and you have to decide whether you are together till death do us part or not. Am I together till death do us part or until resentment do us part? Which is it? Those are the decisions.
decisions that make lasting marriages, whether you're willing to push through those moments of frustration. Listen, nobody ever intends to get divorced. Unless you're a gold digger. I've never married a couple <laughs> that believed when they got married that they would get divorced one day, yet somehow it happens to happen. I gotta tell you, even in my record, it happens to happen. So, why? Is, why? It's because we actually talked with Dylan and Alicia, and we talked about this as we were shooting the video. Because um, I just, you know, and Dylan, I hope you don't mind me saying this, I'm gonna say it. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's smart, so he's here a couple okay with But, uh, you know, Dylan said, yeah, but, you know, my biggest fear is that I come from a broken home that we couldn't end up there. I don't want to end up there, so he's like, I don't even really want to say it, you know, but, but we also understand that, that I don't think anybody gets to, to the point of divorce um, because they intended to when they started. There's this slow thing that happens over time where things that we love turns into things that we hate, where we shift from, you know, when we're dating and when we're engaged, it's all about the other person. You know, it's all about wooing them. It's all about impressing them. It's all about meeting their needs. And then the, the natural trajectory over time is that we shift from focusing on their needs to focusing on our needs, right? When we first start, our mentality is, I'm here to serve them. And then over the course of time, as life happens, and as time passes, and as things get complicated and responsibilities come up, we begin to shift mentally from, I'm here to serve them, to they are here to serve me. And that's when frustration and resentment set in. But, if we are willing, when those moments of pressure come, when that resentment sets in, if we are willing to push past it, we can go from romance to reality and to resentment, but then to rebuilding. Where our marriage becomes stronger, more fortified, and galvanized because of what we've gone through and what we've learned. And unfortunately, I would say only half of marriages make it to that point, based on the statistics. What does it take to build a lasting marriage, the kind of marriage that can go through that sort of resentment, that sort of pressure. I could give you one word. If I was going to give you one word, if you were asking for one word, I would simply say, it's love. But one word is not enough. Because that word gets used in so many different ways. So many different things are called love. So we not only need to know that it's love that carries us through, but we need to know what kind of love carries us through. So we're going to go to the book of 1 John. If you have your Bible, turn to the book of 1 John. Learn what love is. It's going to be toward the back, not too far from the book of Revelation. If you look at it, you decide to get there. 1 John chapter 4. On another page. 1 John chapter 4, starting at verse 11. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God. We God's kind of love. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest towards us. So God is love. He's about to tell us how we see it in God. How does it display? How does it show itself? In this, the love of God was manifested towards us that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. 
In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, as a substitute for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. What kind of love does God show us? God shows us a love of initiation, or a love of response. All right, sorry, let me get this right. God shows us a love of initiative, not a love of response. It's a love of initiative, it's not a love of response. God chose to love us even when we didn't love him. He chose to send his son to die on the cross for us to pay for our sin before we chose him. His love was offered in full to us before we ever responded or showed it back in kind. And the same kind of love that God shows to us, we should show to one another. And if in any situation in marriage, it is a love of initiative. See, God loved us so much, despite the fact that we had turned our back on Him, despite the fact that we had sinned, all of us, each of us individually, and us as mankind, even though Adam and Eve had sinned in the garden and turned their back on God and thought that they belonged in the seat He was in, that's really what sin is when you get down to it. It's us believing we belong in His seat to make His decisions and to decide what life should be. And so each of us have sinned and fallen short of his glory. But even so, he didn't cast us off. He loved us. And that kind of love initiates. And so he sent his son, Jesus Christ, gave up his only begotten son, came to earth, lived a life of example for us and teaching for us and showed us the love of God and showed us the truth, showed us what life is supposed to look like. And then, because of that, because the religious leaders were so threatened by that, by his message, he was crucified. God's love gave up his only son when we still had our backs turned. And Jesus Christ gave his life on the cross, and on the cross he paid for your sin, and he paid for my sin. And it means that you or me, by faith and believing in Him, can take our sin and cast it on Him and be forgiven. And every single one of you can do that if you never have before. If you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for your sins, which He did, if you believe that in your heart and ask forgiveness, you can be saved. You can be forgiven for your sin, which means that your, the disconnection between you and God will be removed. And you can be with Him forever. Heaven for a little while and then here for a long while when Jesus Christ returns. And if you don't believe him, then just watch what Jesus did because they took his dead body off of the cross and they put it into a tomb and on the third day he walked out proving his power over sin and death. He's proved it to you. All you have to do is believe. That's the kind of love that God shows us. And we in turn, what does he say? He says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And, and may I add what he's implying that way. In a sacrificial way. True love is not reactive. It takes initiative. 
True love is not reactive, it is reflective. If you look in your relationship, and I'm going to say this in most cases, I understand that there may be some of you that are here and your marital situation is extreme. And it's very hard for me to speak to all extreme cases while I'm up here, so I'm going to speak to the majority of cases. And if your marriage is in an extreme place, I want to encourage you to get individual counseling for that situation. But in general, if you look at your marriage and there's something there that you don't like, the first place to look is not at your spouse, though that is our first that's our first reaction. If there's something that we don't like, we need to look first at ourselves. We need to look first and say, am I taking initiative? Am I putting the right things into this marriage when I don't see the right things coming out of it? Successful love has a lot less to do with what your spouse, who your spouse is and what they do. And it has a lot more to do with who you are and what you do. So if you're unhappy in your marriage, the first place to look is in the mirror. Now, I don't know about you, my first reaction is to look at my spouse. I'm literally looking at you right now. But the first thing, the first, I mean, our gut reaction, right? This is, this is real life. Our gut reaction when we're frustrated with something is to blame the other person. Is to, is to look at the behavior or the lack of behavior or whatever it is that we're frustrated with and to just wish that they would change it. Because if they would, I mean, obviously I'm not doing anything wrong. If they would just change what they're doing, you know, if they could change their personality, if they could change their behavior, well, then all this would be fixed. Because clearly, it certainly doesn't work when you see that, does it? That's not supposed to be our mentality. First place we need to look is right on back in ourselves. You know, this contention that happens in marriage, some of the most famous verses in the Bible are written within the on marriage, are written within the context of contentiousness. And often we'll read these verses on marriage and not realize the context that's going on. But let me give you an example. First Peter, uh, Peter, Peter writes about marriage in his first, uh, his first epistle, his first letter. And, um, and uh, it sounds really nice. I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll read it here in a second. But just so you know the context before we read, um, Peter's writing, and he's writing about uh, people that are being persecuted in chapter 2. And the marriage part is broke. Actually, it's interesting if you're reading. Chapter 2 sets the context. Chapter 3 is where they start talking about marriage. So if you just start in chapter 3, you don't really know what he's talking about as a whole. But chapter 2 leads right into chapter 3, because when Peter was writing, he didn't have chapters and verses and all that kind of stuff. It was one thought that flowed all the way through. And in chapter 2, he talks about Christians who are being accused of wrongdoing by non-Christians, who are being persecuted for their life of faith. They're under persecution. And he says, listen, when that happens, I want you to treat them well. All right, I, want, I want you to return evil for what they're giving you. I want you to return good. Then he talks about the government. These people are under a, a cruel Roman government at this time who are, who are occupying their area. And so Peter writes about the government. and he's, They're being abused by the government. But he says, don't return. Don't retaliate when you feel like they're abusing you. You need to respect them. And you need to follow them. And you need to obey them. Is there an authority over you? And then he talks about masters and servants. And he says, masters who, masters who are being harsh to their servants. And he says, listen, I know, I get it. But even in the midst of that contention, you need to be a good example of Christ in that situation. 
And then he talks about marriage. Does anybody find that funny? He, talk, he talks about being persecuted and accused by non-believers. He talks about being, uh, uh, being uh, taken advantage of by the government. He talks about being tried harshly by your masters. And then he talks about marriage. It's kind of funny when you think about it. And when you look at the context, it actually helps. He's saying, no, even in the stressful situation, you need to handle you. You need to do you in the right way. Regardless of your situation, he goes immediately into marriage. Here we go. First Peter chapter 3. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your husbands. And by the way, that whole submission to your husband thing is explained elsewhere. I'm not going to get into it today. It's not what most people think it is. Okay. It's not just doing whatever your husband tells you to do. But uh, wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, so you can see there's a contentious situation happening here because the wife is a believer and the husband is not. Which is going to cause a real problem when God has joined the two into one spiritually. But they are not on the same page spiritually. So, so even if they don't obey the word, without a word, you may be won by the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be hidden. Be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, he said it's happened before, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, Whose daughters you are, and if you do good, and are not afraid, then it's here. And so what he's saying is you find yourself in this contentious situation, and what you need to do is you need to look in the mirror, and you need to handle you first. You need to handle you, and only if you're handling you the way that you're supposed to, will it make a difference, will it make an impact. I, I promise you, and I'm, I'm going to say this to, to husbands and wives, because I don't think it really matters, nagging never changed anybody. But examples do. That inspires people to change. And so you handle your side of the deal. And then he talks to the husbands. Husbands, likewise, well with them, with understanding. Giving honor to the wife as a weaker vessel. That doesn't mean she's lesser. It just means she's actually generally women are smaller. All right, as to the weaker vessel. Um, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. And a section of the guys is a lot shorter than a section of the girls. And I think that's probably because guys are a lot harder to live with. Did you notice that? It's like, what is it? Six verses to the women and one verse to the guys. It's because women are a lot easier to live with than guys are to live with, I think. So, uh, but the point is that if we're going to love the way that God loves us, we need a love of initiative. We need a self-sacrificing love that takes care of us first and worries about them after that. And Jess has said this many, many times, and it's absolutely true. And she says it about herself, but it's just as true of me as it is of her. You set the tone of your home. You set the tone of your home. And so if you're frustrated, it will be frustrated. If you're fulfilled, it will be fulfilled. If you're full of joy, it will be full of joy. Not always. I'm not saying that's like a hard and fast rule. This is not God saying this. But generally speaking, you will set the tone of your home. And so we want to make sure that we, you know, we're talking about marriage. Maybe you thought I was going to talk about your spouse. I'm not. 
talk about us. If you're in a marriage today, this is going to apply to you. If you ever want to be married, this is going to apply to you. If you have a relationship with anybody, frankly, it applies to you. But love, that kind of love, that self-sacrificial initiative-taking love is defined in 1 Corinthians 13, and maybe the most famous verses on love in the entire Bible. 1 Corinthians 13 says, Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Love never fails. I heard someone recently say they were talking uh, to somebody who was uh, young and single and starting to date, and they wanted to give me some advice. They said, when you're thinking about who you're going to date, you should take their name and plug it in everywhere it says love, or anywhere that love is implied. So if you're thinking about dating a girl named, um, what name should I use? Sue, that's my mother-in-law. Just pick a different name. Jessica. Let's say I was thinking about dating this girl named Jessica. Then a good metric to use would be to say, and issue these things. Jessica is patient and kind. Jessica does not envy me. Jessica does not parade or puff herself up. Jessica does not behave rudely or seek her own. Jessica is not easily provoked. Jessica does not rejoice in sin, but in the truth. Jessica bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Jessica never fails. They said, if you can stick that person's name into that, and you feel pretty good about most of those answers, then that's a pretty good person to start dating. And I think that's not a bad thing to do, but it might not be fair to them. <laughs> but I think the more important thing to do before you do that would be to plug your own name in and see if you're ready for that kind of commitment. Uh, one of my favorite phrases comes from uh, when it comes to considering dating or being engaged or whatever and preparing for that comes from uh, Pastor Andy Stanley. And uh, what he says is, it's a question. Are you becoming the person that the person you're looking for is looking for? Are you becoming the person that the person you're looking for is looking for? And I think that's what this is describing, is to stop and say, put your own name in and say, am I those things? If you're looking to evaluate your marriage that's already in place right now, I would encourage you to do the same thing. So let me just do it. I'm not going to put my name in. And maybe as I'm putting my name in, you and your own head, you would put your name in. And say, is this me? John is patient and kind. John does not envy. John does not parade or puff up himself. John does not behave rudely or seek his own. John is not easily provoked. 
John does not rejoice in sin, but in the truth. John bears all things. John believes all things. John hopes all things. John endures all things. John never fails. Listen, that's tough for me. Is it tough for you? It's embarrassing, honestly. I feel like I should be a lot better at those things than I am. But I'm not. And nothing will improve in my relationship and nothing will improve in your relationship until we can get better at those things. Because that is love. And God is love. And that's the kind of love that we're supposed to have for each other. I don't know, I look at that list. And part of the reason I say it's not fair to hold someone up, up to it is like, who is all of those things? I know, I know one person. I know one person with all of those things. And it's the only person that I feel like I can genuinely look to as an example to say if my life could be like their life, then I would win on these things. And unfortunately, that person is not in the room today. <laughs> He gave his life for me 2,000 years ago. And if I feel his name in on that list, he is all of those things. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus does not parade or puff himself up. Jesus does not behave rudely or seek his own. Jesus is not easily provoked. Jesus does not rejoice in sin, but in the truth. Jesus bears all things. Jesus believes all things. Jesus hopes all things. Jesus endures all things. Jesus never fails. So if you need an example of someone to look at, to say, I want to get better at this like I do in my life, to improve my marriage and to improve all of my relationships, then together I would ask you to do the same thing I'm doing. To recommit myself the way I have many times before. To say, I want to love as much like Jesus as I possibly can. Peter puts it this way. This is in the chapter before he talked about marriage when he was talking about the persecution. The very end, this is right, by the way, right before he starts talking about marriage. The very end of chapter 2. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. By whose stripes you were healed. And you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I want to encourage you. 
if you're struggling, if you're frustrated, if you're in the place of resentment and haven't been able to push past it and you've been wondering, how do I get there? How do I come out the other side? How do we come out the other side? I want to encourage you to make a commitment to love the way that Jesus loved. To love with initiative. To love sacrificially. To love as a servant the same way that Christ did. And that is true love. True love stands when the other person wants to walk. True love recognizes value even when the other person isn't adding a whole lot. True love gives even when the other person takes. But love, the kind of love that God showed us through sending his son, the kind of love that Jesus showed us by giving his life, is the kind of love that we need in order to experience the fulfillment that God has created every year of our life. Let's pray together. I want to come to you and thank you for your love. Love that took the first step. Love that gave when we gave nothing back. Love that forgives. Love that understands. Love that helps. Love that serves. Love that sacrifices. The love you showed us, God, in sending your son to us. The love Christ you showed by giving your life for us. And today, I and so many people in this room stand in that love, having put our faith in you. Recognizing and putting our faith in you. Pray, God, that someone today who has never put their faith in you would do it for the first time, who's never experienced your love, today would say, I believe and accept forgiveness through Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection so that they can be saved and they can live in freedom the way you created them to. And that they and us together could focus completely on your love. That that even in the hardest times when we feel stressed, when we feel frustrated, when we feel at odds with others, that you would fill us with your love and allow us to take initiative and to say, I'm going to choose to love. I'm going to work on that list for me to become more like you so that we, as a couple, can be stronger and healthier. God, I thank you so much that you set the example for us. As we focus on your love for us and how we live that out, I pray that you would bless us in that and empower us in that and strengthen us in that so that we can follow you as closely as possible. Thank you. We love you. Jesus, I love you. Amen.